0: I always remember one night at training he turned up in his Rolls Royce and he invited us all out he was always very nice to everyone and he invited us all out to his Rolls Royce and he opened up the boot and he had a load of goods in this boot and as I remember it it was Italian shoes and giant teddy bears so you know I was quite keen you know a pair of Italian shoes and I remember saying I can't commit tonight Ken or something or I haven't got the money on me can I can I sort of you know, come back to you. And he goes, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I went home and discussed it at home. And, you know, my mum was pretty sure that there was maybe not a good thing to have those Italian shoes. And she wasn't, she she needed it to be pretty more bona fide than the back of a Rolls Royce. So I was banned from the Italian shoes.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Wearing the Red and Green. In this week's show, I speak to our former goalkeeper, John Palmer. John was between the posts at Stag Meadow for the 1978-79 season. That was the season before the great Kevin Mitchell. John's time at Windsor was only ever going to be for one season, as he then headed off to university. But what a season it was. A League Cup final, an FA Vars run, an FA Cup run... And off the pitch, a season literally full of great stories. We discuss what life was like under manager Brian Caterer, from letting the previous goalkeeper leave, to contract negotiations, FA Cup final tickets, and movie stardom. We literally cover it all. Oh, and also Italian shoes on sale in the back of the chairman's Rolls-Royce and throwing up in training. I hope you enjoy the episode. John, welcome to the podcast. It's absolutely wonderful to have you on. How are things? Yeah, all good. Thank you. Now, listen, you were at Windsor um, for a season, just for a season, back in 1978 um, when I was just one year of age. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this, actually. So um, to get to, to, to get to know more about you, but I, l- I know it was a season that, even though you were only there for a year, but it was a season that left you with a lot of fondness in in, in your heart in terms of your time at Windsor. So I guess I'm just going to start with asking you a little bit about your career pre-Windsor.
0: Yeah, so I, I grew up in Reading, went to Bullmersh School in uh, Woodley, and played lots of school and youth football, just like all semi-pro. Players did. I, I had a spell at Reading Football Club between 10 and 12, at which point they dropped their under 14 provision um, and then continued to play representative football. Got to the last 26 of England schoolboys, um, got cut at that point uh, with Laurie Sanchez, uh, interestingly. And then as I approached the end of my schooling and I was doing A-levels at the time, I played for Bracknell Town 1977. Yep. 1988, had a full season there in the Spartan League uh, and it was all due to go to university at the in September 78, but all the football unfortunately um, affected my A-level results and had to spend another year getting to university um, by retaking in January. Um, and originally my mum banned me from playing football until after the January because she was so uh, annoyed about my results but managed to persuade her to play for a friend's dad at Maidenhead United in their reserves, just as a sort of low key approach to my own exams. Um, after about three games playing there, I got a phone call from an old school friend called John O'Donnell, who was playing for Windsor and Eton. Yep. And he said, we need a keeper. I've recommended you. Do you want to come to training? So I turned up for training um, and they signed me that night. And I played on the Saturday and then played, every game to the
1: end of the season. Now tell me the story about, so Brian Caterer was manager. You've turned up and tell me the story about the kit bag.
0: Yeah. So I turned up to training. Um, John O'Donnell had recommended me. Brian seemed pleased to see me having never, well, he might've seen me play. I don't know. And um, I was in the changing room getting changed for training. And as I was changing from street clothes to, uh, a football kit. There was someone else in the changing room changing from football kit back into street clothes. And as he uh, started to pack his football kit back into his Windsor and eaton bag, Brian Caterer said to him, um, no, I need that bag. And uh, the, the previous keeper, as it turned out, um, explained that he didn't have anything to take his kit home in. So Brian gave him a plastic bag, took the Windsor and Eton bag and gave it straight to me um so i had a windsor and eaton bag from the start but it was a second hand previous keeper's bag.
1: did you give that keeper a little handshake is he uh, is he walked uh up? i uh,
0: kept very quiet in the corner i was 18 years old and a bit embarrassed
1: <laughs> and how did that first training session go
0: enjoyable and i know what you're going to what you're <laughs> alluding to um and i don't think it was the very first training session so first training session went fine uh, players uh, welcomed me. I suspect the previous keeper had not covered himself in glory because um, it was only a few games into the season and they were already changing. Um, so they were pleased to see me on the basis I was probably better than what they'd had before. Is sort of the impression I got. And then, um, but then I worked out at training. They had a um, a fitness regime where they did a um, what we call doggies in football, but they were short, sharp sprints. Um, and they recorded the time and put it up on the changing room wall because I was a young new player, I was determined not to um, be, be last. Not, not, not yeah not not to be the worst in the squad, but I was a goalkeeper. So I gave it everything the first time I did that, but I knew at the end of it that I was going to be sick. so um I needed to get off the pitch and try and do it privately and we did it just in front of the stand. yeah and this is how I remember it and you'll probably know better than me, but I, I, you know, I said, I've got to go to the toilet. Everyone knew sort of where I was going. Um, and I managed to get under the stand. And I, as I remember it, because it's probably the only time I actually went into the stand under there, there are some toilets there. Yeah. And I went under the stand, got to the toilet, managed to get rid, empty the stomach. Uh, as everyone who's been in that situation knows, you actually feel absolutely fine once that's gone. Uh, went back out and trained and uh, they never said anything that they knew. <laughs>
1: Now listen, that season, um, you know, was pretty successful on the pitch. To be fair, in terms of you know, there's there's some good runs in the in the Vars. Yeah, we got to the last thirty-two. Um, I think we lost to the favourites Almondsbury, and um, I think we had an FA Cup run as well that year in terms of yeah. winning a couple of games. But yeah. what were some of your your memories of of that season? Yeah, I mean, what I. What I realised was, firstly,
0: I mean, the Bracknell town wasn't too bad it, and they had some good players, quite a few ex-Windsor uh, players actually in that sign, people like Steve McClurg. Um, and we, so I had a baptism in the Spartan League and been playing all around London and I came to Windsor um, and I knew it was a one season thing for me because I was set to go to university, provided I did OK in January. And... Um, yeah, that was what it was for me. It was just a one-season opportunity to play another year of semi-pro. And what I realised pretty quickly was we were actually a decent side and it was clearly uh, the start of a
1: good run um, yeah. because of the potential in the squad. Um, and just at that point, like um, like some of the players at that time, you know, for our listeners, I mean, it was your yeah. Kevin Hills were there, your John Mitchells yeah, were there. John
0: John Mitchell... Um, Gary Churchill, Phil Duff, John Richardson, um, uh, Alan Few, Roger Harris. Yeah. Um, lots of really good... Oh, Lance Cadogan, of course, and Ian Elaine. Um, some really, really quite good players who stayed for a few years, I know now looking back, um, and were the core of the side over the next few years. And, you know, we came... I think we came third or fourth that year in the league. We got to the, the final... We got to the third qualifying round against Sutton, lost narrowly 1-0. And um, yeah, we got to the last 32 of the VARS. And although Almondsbury had done quite well in the VARS the previous year, we were actually a better side and a better club mm. and totally dominated them on that day. And they went all the way to the final. So that was a little bit of an opportunity missed. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of sort of and you know, obviously I went away and saw what happened in the years following and
1: um know it was the start i think of a really good run you mentioned the cup final alton town which was a side that contained jeff chapel who of course eventually ended up managing windsor
0: we were i just read because the pandemic you know the reason i'm sort of here now really is the pandemic led to us all going up in our loft and i found all sorts of windsor and eton programs and memorabilia and so on Mm. um and i in preparation for this, I just read the uh I've just read this morning actually the report of that final. And literally it said something to the effect of uh Windsor's keeper John Palmer had no saves to make, and the man of the match was the opposition keeper. Um and we lost 2-1. We were one-nil up after 85 minutes. Uh equalizer 88 minutes and lost in extra time. And Jeff Chappell scored the winning goal. Um it was just uh yeah, cup final. It was it was, they rotated round where they played the cup finals and it happened to be at Stag, Med, Stag Meadow that year. So home ground, home cup final, we were the favourites uh, and frankly, on the day, blew it.
1: What were some of your other memories?
0: There were three of us who used to come from Reading. Steve Reed, who was a ex-Watford young player and Paul New, who is a county cricketer for Berkshire and a more senior player. We used to travel from Reading, so it was Reading to Windsor and then off into London most weeks. And we played Welling uh, in Kent and um, they were quite reasonable and obviously have gone on to become a reasonable club. And they had a lad up front who scored pretty much a goal a game in his full career including something like 350 goals in 300 games for Welling and went on to play for a, a number of pro sides. And made, he, he was a big star at Maidstone as well. Um, so playing against them after about 20 or 30 minutes, I got he, a one-on-one with him. He kicked me in the face, um, which was bad enough. But then when I when I started to come around a little bit, I've got no doubt I was concussed. When I started to come around a little bit, um, I realised that my contact lens was not, not on was not working um initially i thought I'd, it dropped out of my eye but it turned out that it had dropped around the back of my eye in the old days it was little hard contact lenses and um, i literally couldn't see what couldn't see so i persuaded the ref that i needed to go off to the changing room and use a mirror um which obviously meant the game couldn't go on he didn't force the game to go on with an outfield player in goal and i must have been 5 to 10 minutes uh, trying to find the contact lens and on the way out i got a load of abuse from the Kent locals, and on the way back, I got a load of abuse. And again, I've just looked at the uh, just looked at the newspaper report, and it said something to the effect of Keeper Palmer got a kick in the head, and didn't seem to know where he was when he came back on the pitch. And uh, shortly afterwards, two goals were conceded. So uh, <laughs> in in the old days, I presume I wouldn't have been on the pitch, but uh, yeah, I had a boxer's eye for the next few days after that.
1: Now you obviously must have made an impact that year because you know Brian at the end of it offered you a contract. Were you ever? I know you, obviously your your parents would have been saying you know you've got to go to uni etc. But you know were you ever tempted to to try and stick around for more than just a season? Yeah,
0: I mean I mean I was I went to Exeter University and I went to do a PE teacher training course and they were very strict in those days. They they recruited quite elite sports people. And they expected the sports people to play for the university, whichever sport it was, which enhanced their reputation as a top sports university. So I was, I knew that in advance and I knew that pretty much the deal was when you had your interview and they offered you a place, they were interested in your academics, but they were interested in your sporting prowess as well. And pretty much they said, you, you know, you're coming, we're offering this on the basis you play for us. So I knew that was the deal. And, um, also, it was a breakaway from the southeast. I was going into the southwest. Yeah. It was a, a, a four-year phase. And um, you know, it was a re- it was a new start to some extent. So Brian um did offer me um the chance to come, you know, travel back every week and play. And um, you know, it really wasn't, wasn't something that I could consider. Um, on the contract side though, and I think I explained this to you before, um, I was fairly new to the whole game of semi-pro football, as you are as a youngster. And at Bracknell, I now realised that a lot of players around me were earning uh, a reasonable amount of money. And I I was sort of there as this young 17 year old in those days. And uh, I was getting expenses about every two weeks, you know, about five or something. Uh, I turned up to Windsor and John O'Donnell had already said there's quite a bit of money at Windsor and they'll be probably be quite generous, but I was the new kid on the block as it were, and uh, didn't, have too much negotiating power but when I arrived I was quite surprised at what they offered me and after about two games he asked me to go into his office and he said John I'd like to sign this and you know I was a reasonably astute young guy even though I was quite young and I said well what is it and he said it's a contract and I said well what does it give me and he said three pounds more and I said "Um, well what does it give you and he says well you can't leave unless someone buys you and uh i said look i'm not signing it now i'll take it home if you like i'll get a few people to look at it and i'll uh, come back and give you a decision but at the moment i'm enjoying playing here and if i'd stop enjoying playing here i want to be able to leave frankly on you know of my own free will so uh, and i'm going to university anyway so um really it's not 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 something i'm that keen on and he he didn't even let me take it home he just said fine and then two weeks later, he called me back in the office and he said, John, we're going to pay you the extra three quid anyway. And so that was pretty nice. Um, my understanding is the other players, a large number were on contract. And uh, Gary Churchhouse, of course, was there. And he that ended up gaining the club £3,000. Um, and what the players didn't realise was they were on a one-year contract with a one-year option, which meant the club had an option, but they didn't. And um, several players started whispering towards the end of the season because they'd done quite well. I think I'm going to look for a bigger club. Um, And Brian had us all in the changing room and said, I've heard a few whispers that a couple of you want to go. I'm sorry, but you're on a two-year contract and we want you all to stay. So you're here next year. Um, Me, of course, I was the only one who had the option of (laughs) staying or going, and I was going anyway. (laughs) But I think they were all on contract.
1: (laughs) That was Brian. That was Brian. All over. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, he was pretty sharp customer.
1: When you um, obviously the the, the following few seasons, Windsor went on and enjoyed considerable success. Was there yeah. any kind of envy when you looked back and you saw the kind of success that the squad went on to achieve?
0: Yeah, yeah. In yes and no. Um, I as we'll probably talk about in a minute. I got I just got lucky with a with a lot of opportunity in football. Uh, both playing and coaching and the opportunity came because I went to university and the networks I created there. So um, I would have loved to have played in the first round of the FA Cup. I would have loved to have played at Wembley. I would have um, yeah, loved some of the stuff that Windsor achieved and I never quite did those things. I got to the third qualifying round a couple of times, including with Windsor. I got to... Um, I actually got signed back on for Windsor uh, at the semi-final versus Wickham because they were, Brian saw me in the crowd. I turned up to watch the game and Brian saw me in the crowd and he wasn't convinced about whoever he had as his reserve keeper. And he said, look, if Kevin gets injured, um, you know, can you just sign on and then you get to play at Wembley? Oh, okay, I'll do it, Brian. And so I I actually signed on two years after I left. Um, And then my very last game in semi, first team game in semi-pro football, where I was just winding down because of my career. And I was playing for Taunton Town Reserves and being player coach. And um, I played in the first team, the, ga- the game before they played at Wembley, because the first team keeper didn't want to get injured. Whereas, of course, I wanted him to play and get injured. And then yeah, I'd, yeah. Have played, I'd, have, I'd have played at Wembley. And I had the chance to sit on the bench at Wembley for Taunton, but I'd just had my son and it, was, uh, it wasn't fair to spend the weekend away from home. So I got... I got close to Wembley twice and first round of the FA Cup. I'd have stayed at Windsor, probably. And um, yeah, I got to third qualifying round twice. So I didn't quite make that, but I had lots of other opportunities that I would have missed if I'd have done that.
1: And what did football, so what did football consist of? You obviously mentioned and reserves there, but like, what did football consist of post-winter?
0: Yeah, so I went to Exeter University and to be honest, having had two years of semi-pro experience me- meant I was quite a big fish at that level. And um, I got straight into the university side. I got straight into England and British universities at, in year one. And the standard of that was great. Uh, the best football teams I played in, actually, were British universities. Mm. Every single player had been with clubs or was playing in the, in the conference or um, went on and played pro. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that was great. And we had, we had, you know, one of your questions is about a coach later on. We had the guy that ran that. was a guy that had um, discovered Steve Highway actually, at Scalmersdale. And he managed Altrinum and Bangor City but he was also, he was a professor at Bangor University and he went on to, um, emigrate to America and he he ended up running America under 16s for 10 years and, um, working for Umbro football in, in America. And he was an A licensed coach and he, he was the best coach I've ever worked with. And he liked me and, um, trusted me and always picked me and, um, gave me lots of opportunity. So, um, yeah, so I played four years of university football, including for the national team. Played about 50 games for the national team over those four years. And then when I finished, I got a job in Taunton in Somerset um, and played Western League football until I was in my mid-30s, but also had a spell in America, coaching, uh, 18-month spell when I, in my mid-20s. So uh played for the likes of Barnstable, Taunton, Tiverton, Chard. That's probably it. Um yeah, from from leaving university to mid thirties.
1: You mentioned coaching there. Did you, uh, when you finished playing, did you did you go into coaching?
0: Yeah, no, it wasn't so much finishing playing because I went off to train to be a PE teacher, and so there's you know a lot of parallels with coaching. So um, I did my coaching badges at university, got the chance through some of my networks with the with the national side. Um, got the chance to go to America to coach went to Switzerland to coach uh, coached in Britain um, so I was the head coach on the Ray Clements School of Goalkeeping one year and I did um, so I basically I had summer holidays because I was a student then a teacher and every summer holiday when I was single in my 20s I was traveling and coaching um, during the summer Uh, and that ranged from coaching little you know young real youngsters through to some quite elite youth coach like I did I, I coached on a two-week residential camp in America with Roy Reese as the specialist goalkeeper coach where we were it was basically um the American youth side um and they came for a two-week residential camp and I worked with the likes of Steve Highway and all, all they were all a licensed coaches except mm. me but I was there because of my goalkeeper specialism and I was the young you know I was about 24 or whatever and they were all in their 30s having had a big coaching and playing career. So, again, I was able to network and meet lots of, uh, learn lots and meet lots of um, interesting and capable people.
1: Must have been a pretty cool experience in, like, the different countries, as you say, of, like, all the travel that you did.
0: Yeah, I just got a lot of, you know, I, I, was, I was always someone that said yes if people offer me stuff. So I got home from university one year and the day after I got home and I was broke and tired and knackered, And someone phoned up and said, look, I've just heard there's an opportunity to coach in Switzerland. Um, I don't know much about it, but I've recommended you. Someone's going to phone you. So someone phoned me and said, we've got to go tomorrow. Um, I don't know how much you're going to get paid. You've got to buy your own airline ticket. Uh, And I'm thinking because he was a third third party guy, this guy. And I'm thinking, God, he said, meet me at Heathrow. I'll be the guy with a red puma bag. And, you know, put the phone down. I said yes and put the phone down and thought, God that is that my mate sort of stitching me up, but he, um, he was there, we went and it was the Martin Chivers school of football. Uh, he ended his career in Switzerland playing for Servette in Geneva. And he set up, he was quite a cult figure in Switzerland. And he set up football camps and then got people like me at very low, mo- <laughs> very low money to run them while he came in for half a day and raked off all the money. Um, but again work with multinational coaches yeah 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 um, work with multinational kids in a ski resort in switzerland got i didn't earn a lot of money but i didn't but i covered all my costs and gained a bit and of course again networks and got great experience went one year for two weeks in switzerland then got six weeks the following year um yeah so good times
1: with all the all the various experiences and obviously all the different clubs you played for, what made Windsor special? What did you enjoy most at Windsor when you think back?
0: Yeah, I, I mean everything really at Windsor because um, I was the young boy. Um, we had some experienced older guys like Roger Harris and Paul New and Alan Few, um, and then there were like, they were all older than me, but there were young youngish lads like Keith Beckett and Kevin Hill. They were probably I was eight I was literally just 18 when I started and then those guys were probably 20, 21 mm. 22 and there was a little core of those Gary Churchhouse, Phil Duff they were all probably in there 20 between 20 and 22 but quite you know relatively young um but again I was much younger than them again I mean I was i w- I was literally just you know just a boy really and, and going into men's football and getting the chance to go all over London you know, learning about the you know as a goalkeeper, learning about the stick you get behind the, the the game. Learning that if you, learning that if you take a long enough run up for your goal kick, someone grabs your shirt and you can't run up. Um, and if you put your gloves, your spare gloves too near the goalpost, a little kid runs in and nicks them. So you have to put them more central. You know, learn the tricks of the trade. Um, you know, and it was all that was all sort of new to me. And I was playing against people who've been pros and they've been in my soccer stars book only six years before um so yeah I, I just liked all of that and I was a bit of a fish out of water in some ways because I've got sort of uh you know my parents were academics and I was quite middle class kid and I was a bit skinny and young and um naive and just the mix the social mix of people was uh frankly a really good life education for me um so yeah just great and uh, we had some great I'm mean, were quite a big side. Um, yeah. You know, we played them at Stag Meadow, literally gave them a decent game and lost one nil to an own goal. Um, you know, we would beaten stains in the round before who were also in premier, I think. So that was exciting. We got to the cup final. We beat, we burn them away in the semi-final and that was quite a local derby. And I think they were favorites on that day. So all of that. And then of course you've got Brian and Colin. <laughs> um, I, you know, I see. I saw what happened to Colin later on, and he became his, the main man at Yeovil, for example. Yeah, 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 of course. And I was actually teaching at Yeovil College at the time, and I always meant to go up and say hello, but never got never got to do it. Um, but I wouldn't have predicted that Colin would have gone on and done that because it was very much Brian the main man. He was mm. the it was pretty autocratic. He was the decision maker. It always seemed, and Colin was the doing the dirty work of all the phone calls and the um you know very much the assistant yeah um, but of course that that changed around a little bit later on but brian
1: quite a character and talking of characters you know there's quite a few characters off the pitch and i've often heard quite a few stories about ken cornwall who was the chairman at the chairman at the time yeah, yeah well ken ken ken
0: you know I'm, I'm i'm just there and i'm playing i'm getting more money than i expected to do what i'd have done for nothing anyway And we're doing quite well, so I'm enjoying it all. And Ken, every now and then, just popped up in a Rolls Royce. And, uh, you know, it was, I think no one quite knew where his money had come from, but he was clearly, I assume it was his money, because I don't think the crowds and the income was coming. I don't think the crowd and income was probably enough to pay what they were paying. So, you know, it was all very interesting. But I, I always remember one night at training, he turned up in his Rolls Royce and he invited us all out. He was always very nice to everyone, and he invited us all out to his Rolls Royce. And he opened up the boot, and he had a load of goods in this boot. And as I remember it, it was Italian shoes and giant teddy bears. And that's an obvious mix, right? Yeah, And yeah, like, you know, I, I, no idea. And uh, you know, I was quite keen. You know, a pair of Italian shoes. And I remember saying, "I can't commit tonight, Ken, or something. Or I haven't got the money on me. Can I? Can I sort of?" you know come back to you and he goes yeah yeah no problem so i went home and discussed it at home and you know my mum was pretty sure that there was maybe not a good thing to have those italian shoes and she wasn't she she needed it to be pretty more bona fide than the back of a rolls royce so i was banned from the italian shoes but definitely some of the boys started to turn up for games in italian shoes after that
1: and uh should i ask about fa cup final tickets
0: yeah. Now I didn't know this at the time, but certain semi-pro clubs, depending on the background, history, and uh, level, I presume, get donated a number of FA Cup. Yeah, they do. That together. still
1: happens. Still, yeah. Happens.
0: Okay, it must go down to a certain level. So, whatever we got, the club, maybe six tickets or four tickets or whatever. Um, most clubs, I never had it after this, and um, no, no, no other club ever filtered down to the players. But fair play to Windsor. Um, Brian, I think, came in and said, you know, we've got some FA Cup final tickets. If you want to be in the draw for them, tell me now. And he literally did the draw, pulled out two names and there were two players tickets. Brian, I don't think Brian was in the lottery because Brian got one, a ticket. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't <laughs> in the lottery to get one of the tickets. I'm pretty sure Brian had the ticket and then there were two for the players. Um, And Lance Cadogan and myself came out. And, you know, absolutely brilliant experience. So I went up to London on the train, met Lance, Brian. I can't remember if Colin was there. I can't remember if it was just us three or Colin as well. And we met in a hotel bar just outside the stadium. And uh, Brian seemed to know someone there. And I don't know, he always seemed to know someone. And then uh, we watched the game, but we we had tickets in the uh, Man United end, And Brian had a pretty Cockney-stroke London-based accent. Brian wanted Arsenal to win. We were in the Man United end. And Brian was not really the sort. I, I was a little bit, even at 18, I was a little bit more smart about keeping my mouth shut because I sound a little bit like I'm from London. And um, But Brian couldn't couldn't keep his mouth shut. And um, uh, we started getting threats from sort of a few people away from us. You know, something about the Cockney B-A-S-T-A-R-Ds. And uh, I think Brian at that point played a bit more diplomatic. But uh, yeah, it was it was the final where it was pretty boring until the last few minutes, and then there were loads of goals right at the end.
1: Right, right, right. So Man right.
0: United two, I think Man United were two nil down, got back to two all, and then it was. But then just as they were celebrating the equaliser, Alan Sunderland got the winner in about the ninety second minute, and they were still celebrating. And someone then just said, "Look, we just lost the game, boys." And uh, Brian was Brian was uh, happy, but inwardly happy at that
1: point. <laughs> now another thing that season obviously it seemed like everything happened during your season at Windsor um which I posted on social media about uh recently was the film Yesterday's Hero which starred Ian McShane now that film was about um kind of a George Best type character that had you know um uh had his issues of alcohol and dropped down all the levels and what have you. Um, and I think you can you can still find the film, it's, it's available. But the, 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 the film was filmed at Stagmeadow, and the Windsor side were basically a bunch of extras in it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way that happened, it was absolutely perfect for me. It was in February or March of 79. I took my exam in January. Therefore, I then had January to September playing for Windsor, and I, I'd already arranged to go do some residential camp work in the Lake District for the summer. And then I was off to Exeter. So I had a lovely little uh, period planned. Um, so it was in about February. I, I had no real commitments. Uh, I think someone from the committee or Brian came in and said, look, we've got a chance to be in a film voice. Anyone want to do it? You've got to be available for these four days, two days at York Road, Maidenhead Edge United, two days at Stag Meadow the following week. And of course, most of the guys were, were committed work-wise Yep. And couldn't actually do it, so it'd been offered to Wokingham Town, Maidenhead United players, and Windsor players, and I was absolutely free. And you're getting paid to go off and be in a film, you know. I couldn't, couldn't you couldn't write it, so I was writing. So I, I was in. Um, Brian himself was in. Um, he decided to come out of retirement and be a player <laughs> in this. Uh, he was about thirty eight or forty or something, but he said, "I'm in." Um, but most of the players couldn't actually do it. So in fact. As I remember it, there was a guy called Jeff Banks who was on the periphery of the side my year. He played a lot in the reserves and he was on the bench quite a lot. Probably played 10, 15 games maybe but he was in. Um, and I remember him because he was quite a character. And then uh, the reserve team manager who I don't know his name, but a, I can visualise his face and he had a beard. And I think in the film you can see him. Um, but they're the only ones I can remember. I knew a few of the Maidenhead Ed and Windsor players and they were you know they just joined us and then they split us all up to be in either the opposition or the ho- or McShane's team. And we were the team uh I was in the team with McShane. I was his goalkeeper when he was at his lowest ebb, drinking heavily at half time and stuff like that. Uh, and we were the we were the really bad team he'd ended up in. Um and it was fascinating, you know, just seeing the film world. We turned up at York Road about six in the morning, given brand new kit, brand new boots told a little bit about what we had to do. Um, we were told that the, the film started in the 72nd minute on a really miserable, cold, wet day, and we had brand new kit on, so we were told to just go out and make it look like we'd been playing for 72 minutes. So we had to dive around in the mud and everything. Um, the pitch wasn't wet enough for the script, and they got the local fire brigade to come down. They put 50,000 gallons of water on Maiden Edge United's pitch, So God knows how much they were paid. Their game was off on the Saturday after. Um, So I don't know how much they were paid to do it, but I don't know if it it probably maybe didn't make up for that. Um, So it was actually waterlogged in the film. You can see it waterlogged, but it actually wasn't waterlogged naturally. It was waterlogged because of the fire brigade. Did two days filming at York Road and then um, two days filming at Stag Meadow. There were a few quite famous people in it of the day. Adam Faith, Suzanne Summers, Paul Nicholas. Frank McClintock was the football advisor, the ex Arsenal captain, and Ian McShane. His dad played for Man United, and he he was about in his mid thirties, and he had a little bit of football in him. He played a bit of football, so he and he was actually a really nice bloke. Yeah, and he was going out at the time with a soft porn actress, which intrigued obviously all the football boys. Um, we were asking him all sorts about that, um, and then it, we were already getting paid quite generously. But Brian Caterer led a sort of union revolt after about two days of filming. Brian said, alongside a couple of others, Boys, they've got two days of filming. If we walk out, they lose thousands and thousands of pounds. So if we just refuse to carry on, um, they'll have to pay us more. And the, there was the, the filming stopped for a little while while they had these negotiations. And, um, and what, the
1: re- what was the reason for, for what was Brian's?
0: He just wanted more money. He literally just wanted more money. It was freezing cold and wet and whenever that, you know, it took ages and ages to film every take and in between takes, we were literally out in the cold and wet Ian McShane. As soon as they stopped one take, a couple of girls ran on with a long fur coat, um, top to bottom fur coat and an umbrella and McShane had a fur coat and an umbrella over him. We were just shivering on the pitch. but the guy, uh, there are really strict rules about how much you're allowed to pay extras because you're not in uh, whatever it's called, the uh, RADA, you know, you're not in the, whatever it's called, the, you know, you're not a trained actor, so you're only allowed to earn so much. But then they found in the small print, they found a clause. If the conditions are particularly dangerous or um, poor, they can actually pay you more. So Brian, I, I ended up earning the equivalent of something like a £1,000 paid in cash for four days work as an 18 year old just about to go to university so i was uh i was cringing when they were saying we're not happy with how much we're being paid because i was quite happy um and he said are you all in?" you know i think i could almost visualize brian in the york road changing rooms right boys we've got to be all in together are you all in you know who am i to say to my manager at windsor and brian um as an 18 year old lad no no I, i'm okay with what we're getting paid so uh yeah so anyway we we ended up getting paid a massive wad of cash at the end of the second of the fourth day so yeah good good i mean unbelievable experience four days filming and i'm in the film for about 20 seconds
1: uh well as i say that film is still you can still find it i think you can
0: find it on youtube and you can see stag Meadow quite clearly um yeah it looked a bit of a mess it was in the middle of winter and, can't remember any green, green on Stag Meadow for much of my time there. And certainly not when the film was uh, film was filmed. But there's a little bit with the stand and um, they're scouting McShane to go get an opportunity to go back into the higher levels. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're in. They're in the you can see the Stag Meadow stand in that little clip of the film. Oh, Anyone wow. interested, it's the, about the first six or eight minutes of the film. Film's not that good, even though it was quite high budget. Um, but you don't have to watch more than the first six to eight minutes to get the Windsor and Eaton bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although I haven't seen the film, you did, to be fair, you do get um, – there's a lot of uh, footage taken around the town as well. So it is actually oh, okay. cool seeing Windsor High Street and – Oh, okay. We, no the coach there. bit, we spent – there was a whole
0: section where we drove around the Berkshire countryside in a coach – doing, um, you know, coming back from the match footage. And there was loads of stuff that didn't get filmed in there. There was one bit, everyone was drinking on the coach, in shame more than most. And um, because they were drinking so much, they had to have a, a stop to go to the toilet. So they stopped on the side of the road and they all lined up, the whole, all of us lined up in a row. And the idea was to have a team photo of everyone, you know, uh, relieving themselves and that was going to get put on the changing room and that was going to be a little bit in the film and we all had fairy liquid bottles with uh water in it so that so you had to hold that as if you were going to the toilet and the you know in the film obviously didn't show them fairy liquid bottles so it was a whole line of these uh, uh fountainous fairy liquid bottles and all that didn't make the film but we you know spent ages filming it and it never never got in there and then but there is there is a clip of us getting off the coach and I'm, I'm actually in that clip. I'm the first person off the coach when we got back to Stag Meadow, although I, I don't even know if that was filmed at Stag Meadow because it was in the
1: dark and it was just getting off a coach. Are you, are you disappointed that a Hollywood career didn't beckon for you? <laughs> yeah, no, I, you?
0: I was absolutely happy that that was my opportunity, a uh, one-off and only opportunity. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Right, John, I'm now going to ask you some quickfire questions. I do this on every um, every podcast. And even though I say quickfire, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be uh, easy for you. So to kick off, who was the best player you played with at Windsor? So of all the players you played with in that one season, who was the best player? I mean, I think
0: two stand out. Um, and I, I'm going to go for Lance, Lance Cadogan. Um, yeah. I read something about Lance and I thought that described him perfectly languid. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know how much you've heard about Lance, but Lance looked like he was relaxed and casual. And then he just went, you know, he, he, you know, he looked like he wasn't that bothered some of the time. And then, but he was like a Fox in the box. And, um, he was literally, yeah, he was a seriously good player, Lance. And, um, Lovely lad as well. So um, I think Lance, because he was a game changer. But as far as sort of consistency, every game, John Mitchell. And, you know, I know that he had a long, long career and um, not sure how old he was at that point. Probably had, must have been four or five years older than me. But um, yeah, and he obviously did it over a long period of time. But he was week in, week out, just exactly the same and very consistent. Um, better than that standard, and we had we had Gary Churchhouse, of course, who went on and got his opportunity. I did hear a rumor, and I'm, I'm not even not sure if it's true, but because I wasn't on contract, apparently they expressed some interest in me, but because I wasn't on contract, they said, "No, he's going to university. <laughs> he won't. He won't be interested," <laughs> which is actually true, because I I always felt I was decent, but not not good enough to make it. Um, yeah yeah. So it wasn't and you know and I I committed to being a teacher and everything which I've, I'm in my 42nd year of teaching I think. Um so yeah no I I I I'm glad that I didn't want to do it cuz if that was true it would have been disappointing but um yeah it, it didn't affect me but obviously we the club got 3000 pounds for Gary.
1: Same question but your whole career. So um and it could be the same answer but uh, when you think about your whole career
0: yeah so You know, any semi-pro footballer has played with a lot of players who've been professional and a lot of players who are going to be professional. Um, And you play against a lot of really good players, obviously, as well. So I'm going to go for people I actually played with. Um, The best player was someone I... Well, the best two players are people I played with at British universities, actually, who went on and became Premiership or Division One, it might have been at that time. Um, so one is called Mecha Nwajobi, a Nigerian boy. Um, he played for England Schoolboys two years in a row. He was training to be a pharmacist. He came from an academic Nigerian family who wouldn't let him, you know, would, wouldn't entertain being a professional prior to education. And he, I went to America a couple of times with him on tour. I played loads of games with him for British universities. And he, he was just exceptional. And he played for Luton with Ricky Hill and Brian Steen played about 60 or 80 games or something, scored a decent number of goals, but got injured out at about 25, 26. So he didn't quite become a megastar, but he, he he was more than holding his own in Division One and, and being a decent player in that side. He, he, he was just exceptional. And then there was another lad called Richard Jobson who... um I was in my last year, I think, or my third year, and I'd already played for British universities for ages, so I was like one of the old hands. And he came in as a freshman, an 18-year-old, and he immediately was one of the best players for British universities as a new boy. And
1: um, Was he a centre-half?
0: Yeah, centre-half or midfield, but mainly centre-half. He ended up, he was at Nottingham University. Yeah. He started his second year at university. Prior to going back to university, he played for Burton Albion, Run by Neil Warnock. Yes. Yeah. No, or was it Bucks? No, but I think it was Burton Album, run by Neil Warnock. And um, he was scouted by Watford, Graham Taylor. He was given a phone call and said, uh, I want to sign you for Watford. Are you interested? And he said, Well, oh, I'm not sure. My dad and mum, dad was a head teacher. And it was like, I'm not sure, you know, they'll let me leave the university. And he said, I need to know by tomorrow or the deal's off. And um, he ended up going, and he was playing it. He, he played for Watford that year in the in Division One straight away as a nineteen-year-old. And he ended up playing about six hundred league games. Played for Man City, old played for Oldham under Joe yeah, Moore yeah. in the Premiership uh, Division One. It probably was called those days. Um, yeah, ended up playing about six hundred games, and he's he's in the PA, He he works for the PFA now. Yeah, good player. I
1: remember. I remember yeah, it.
0: yeah.
1: Who's the best manager you played under?
0: Yeah, I already mentioned him definitely roy reese i mean it's different it's difficult actually when you're talking and i'm quite interested in all this i you know i teach a level pe and uh, I've, ta- I've taught degrees in sport and i'm i do quite a bit about leadership and coaching and managing and that sort of thing and it, semi-pro football intrigues me because you have limited time with the players to be successful you don't actually have to be a good coach so manager and coach are actually you know quite separated really mm-hmm. in um they're quite different roles. So someone like Brian, for example, was a very good motivator, a very good spotter of the right characters to put together to make a good team. But I wouldn't say he was a good, necessarily a, a coach. Um, but Roy Reese um, uh, probably fulfilled both of those, manager and coach. And Roy Reese, who discovered Steve Highway, uh, worked as the under-16 coach for America, uh, managed Alchurn and North uh, Bangor City. Um uh, yeah, I had massive respect. He just knew more about football than anyone ever met before. And I learned so much from him. Um, and he was a good motivator, man manager, got mm. the best out of players, but, you know, real clever, psychologically dealing with different players in a different way. I mean, he, he just basically said to me, you know, i and, and you know, I believe in you, but I expect, I expect a lot out of you. And, and if you don't do that, you're gone. But if you do that, I'll, I'll look after you. And, Pretty much that's what worked for me, you know, and um, yeah, he was always very, very loyal to me, um, but also produced really good teams. We we played, uh, we used to play the FA 11 every year, and we played, um, we used to play at one of the conference grounds. And we used to play for the FA 11, it was a a trial for the semi pro England side, so it was all conference players, and some seriously good players played against us, and we always held our own. Um, so that was the sort of level that British universities were. But Stuart Pierce played in that against us, and Alan Smith, the the Arsenal Alan Smith played because they both came out of non-league. Um, neither of whom played for England Semi-Pro. They so they played in that game against us and actually yeah. didn't didn't end up getting in the side. Um but yeah, they they were good days. But Roy Roy would put together a team from all these different universities who could then compete at that level. Um and we, we spent four days a year at Lillashaw being coached and just brilliant. Really good.
1: Oh, fair play. Fair play. Okay. Final two questions. And I'm going to flip these round because it doesn't feel right to end on this question. Uh, yeah, but yeah, all right. As a goalkeeper, what was your biggest howler? Well, I, 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 you know, all keepers have
0: howlers. I was I was pretty lucky in that I didn't have too many howlers that mattered too much in two big games. But I did have one bad game, you know, as I remember it. I did pretty well at Windsor, as I remember it. But I had one howler game, and that was against Aylesbury in the Barks and Bucks Cup. Yeah, and I I just let a soft one in early on. Um, I can remember it. I I it was I was taking a high cross, and I was off balance, and I fell backwards, and I couldn't get the ball under control before I landed, and it bounced, you know, bounced out of my hands, and they scored, and. I just remember I was pretty good at letting a soft one in and then not letting it affect me. But that day I just, I just had a nightmare game. Really. We lost four one. I think we were going to lose anyway, actually, because Ellsbury were a bet. were a good side. They were in the higher league, Southern league. I think they were. Um, and I do remember, and I didn't want to go in the bar for a drink at the end because, uh, you know, it used to really affect me. I I used to, it used to spoil my Saturday night. If I played Mm. badly or we lost, I was quite a winner really. And, um, I remember Brian coming in because I was the only, I, was st- I was in the changing room on my own, just getting changed, thinking I'll, t- I'll get changed real slow and then I'll slide out and go home. And I remember Brian coming in and making me go for a drink and basically saying, you know, you've been bloody brilliant. One bad game doesn't make you a bad keeper. So get, you know, and he did the right thing, really, and um, forced me in for a drink and uh, told me to forget about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't forgotten about it even today. I'm
1: annoyed today. <laughs> but it's always a challenge isn't it as a goalkeeper right because you know as you say everybody naturally will make mistakes it's just as a goalkeeper unfortunately those mistakes will inevitably lead to no lead absolutely to, lead, and lead um, goalkeepers goal. make less mistakes than outfield players as a general rule um, but
0: of course they, they can be costly and you know I was really lucky in that I was you know I generally had very good experiences and I was getting pats on the back far more than I I was doing the bad stuff but um but you can't, you can't have a whole career without making some poor exactly. errors and um, and some of those cost goals. And sometimes you have a, you get away with murder, you know. Sometimes you make a terrible error and nothing comes of it, and everyone forgets it very quickly. And other times it's less, it's less of a bad error, but ends up in a goal and people remember it for a long time. But uh, but that's what you take on if you become a goalkeeper because you can also be the glory boy. Well, so. and on
1: the glory, on the glory. So let's end uh, with this
0: one. Your best save. They're tricky. Best saves are tricky because they're done in training mainly. The best saves are normally done in training, or they're done at a level where it didn't matter, or they're done in a game where you lose, so they didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. I always used to, I used to hate it when you made a great save, gave a corner away, and then they score from the corner because it almost means it was irrelevant making the save. Mm. So goalkeepers have a slight, a strange psychology. You know, when a penalty is given against your team there's a little bit of you that thinks, right, this is my chance for glory. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you didn't like having the penalty against you, but, you know, I, I was always reasonably good at saving penalties. So i got a good, pretty good ratio. So if a penalty was against me, for me, it was like an opportunity because yeah, I'm expected yeah. to let it in, but there's a chance I'll save it. So um, yeah, it's a f- strange, strange psychology being a keeper, but um, I'm, I'm trying to think of saves in the, uh, for, for Windsor. I was trying to think about this and I was looking through some of the press reports and stuff and i found some quite nice uh comments but um the two that i remember i'd only been there a few games and we played stains with away yep drew nil nil uh, and they were assuming premier we beat them in the replay but um it was nil nil it was a big game we were expected really to lose we weren't, weren't the favorites and i had a good game generally but i had one save i remember where people after the game for me, I was quite athletic and agile, and I, I didn't always... True goalkeepers quite often will say the ones that the crowd think are great saves are not mm. the great saves. The great saves, actually, are sometimes low down, don't look as good, sometimes with your feet. Yeah. Um, the flying saves and the agile saves are not necessarily the great saves in in a goalkeeper's mind. So I had one against staines where I tipped it over the bar um, against the odds, and people thought it was a goal. And people always talked about that after the game and came up to me, including the opposition. But I, you know, for me, it was a, it was a save I was ex- I, I would expect to make. And if I hadn't yeah, made yeah, it, yeah, I would yeah, see it yeah. as an error. Yeah. But that wasn't how it was perceived. So that was sort of a great save. And then I had another one similarly against Uxbridge. And that was fairly early on. We, I think we drew nil-nil in that game as well. So it was a clean sheet. And I remember a couple of the players' dads who obviously we're getting to know me as a, um, as a young keeper who looked like, is he going to be the one that's going to stay for a while because we've got, had to get rid of the other guy. So, you, you know, you, they're not sure about you for a few games, are they? So um, I remember a couple of the dads coming up and saying what a world-class save it was. And again, I, I it was a save I expected to make personally, but they perceived it as a great save. So I suppose those early saves cement your... Start to cement your reputation as someone yeah, who yeah, might totally. be a keeper for the rest of the season, rather than oh my god, we've got to look for a new keeper again. You know, whenever you go to a new club as a keeper, you know you're either in and they want you, or you're out because um, there's, no, there's no real fine line. They can't, they won't, they can't stick with you as an okay. They have to, yeah. you either have to be in or out really. And uh, you know, I was always lucky like that. I generally went into clubs and did well early
1: on, but uh, but
0: those saves
1: like that early on help you. Totally. Listen, John. Thank you so much. I've, I've honestly, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's great to, um, it's great to, obviously, hear your stories and tales, and you know, just remember some of the stuff back from that period in the, you know, the late seventies and stuff. Um, you know, that's what this, you know, the podcast's all about, trying to keep all those memories alive. So, honestly, thank you.
0: No problem. Thank you very much. It was lovely to go up in the loft and relive some of that. Good times.
1: Brilliant. And listen to it. all of you that have downloaded, once again, thank you. And we look forward to bringing you another guest in a, in a few weeks' time.